Unfortunately, some members of the media... Some members of the media... Some members of the media... Some, some members of the media use their, their platforms to, to push their, their own personal bias. bias. To push their own personal bias and agenda to control exactly what people think. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the cult mindset. We're going to be talking about mentality, in-group, out-group statuses. We're going to be talking about mental conditioning and breaking mental conditioning. And how do you know that you're not mentally conditioned? What are some signs that uh, you're actually thinking for yourself and can respond for yourself? I'm going to start with this quote by this Russian KGB agent who defected to the U.S. He says, as I mentioned before, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who is demoralized is unable to assess true information. And this demoralization he's talking about is just uh, you're beat down with this constant propaganda and you just start to believe this propaganda. The facts tell nothing to him, even if I show him with information, with authentic proof, with documents and pictures, he will refuse to believe it. That is the tragedy of the situation of demoralization. Yuri Bezmenov. And we can see this in action. Uh, one of the things I've done over the last month is I've watched maybe 20 hours of uh, Kyle Rittenhouse testimony in, in the trial of the Rittenhouse case. And here's a pretty black and white case. Right after the shooting, you had plenty of video feed, video evidence of of events during that day, who was doing what, when, what their mentalities were. And it is very painfully obvious that there's a young kid, a very all-American kid, who cares about his community, trying to defend his community from violent looters and violent rioters. And these people attack him and he defends himself. And what happens in the media? The media sensationalizes and feeds false propaganda to their listeners about this case they try to spin the narrative right away they latch on to key things that they think support their side they can't have someone defending themselves against their group the these people the, the rioters on the ground those are their shock troops so they can't have those people be portrayed in bad lights even after all the facts came out right after the shooting who was shot Oh, a child molester. Oh, yeah, a spousal abuse person. Someone who uh, has a, a history of felony, felony theft. Those are the people who are shot. And who's doing the shooting? Some kid who cleans up graffiti off of walls, who's a lifeguard, uh, who, who's a, a fire volunteer firefighter, uh, who's a volunteer uh, young cadet for the police. This is an all-American kid doing this. And so the media had to pick up on the little bits of scraps that they could echo. One of them was this really weird claim that you see saw echoed everywhere, even on Facebook and in conversations with people. Oh, this these are the events that happened. Here's videos to it. Oh, but didn't you know he crossed state lines? Like, what is this? So I was talking to my wife about this case, and she she's very confused by the fact that there are so many people out there just trumpeting this one talking point. Oh, he crossed state lines as if that has ever been a concern in the past, anywhere else within history that someone crossed state lines. Therefore, what they did was bad. It's just this weird talking point, but it's trumpeted by all these people who are being fed nothing but corporate media propaganda. And that's their talking point to condemn Kyle Rittenhouse because that's the one little piece of evidence they had. And that turned out to be a false narrative as well. His dad lived in the town, he worked in that town, and he was there the previous night. And so he was already in the town. This, this is his community that he's defending. And these false talking points were propagated and believed and championed in the face of very clear evidence of what went down and why it went down. And anyone who watched the trial knew very clearly that these were evil people with intent to hurt Kyle Rittenhouse, who he shot. They pointed a gun at his head, and he shot them. This is clear self-defense. But 
you have people who will not, they will not be persuaded by evidence, by video, that this is their side. They need to defend their side at all case. They want to look past the fact that one of the people killed had five children that he raped between the ages of nine and 11. Five of these people. This person's still alive. This person's still walking our streets. This person is put down. They're defending him against Kyle Rittenhouse because that's their side. They're in a cult. This is a cult mentality. They're just parroting talking points to try to condemn this all-American kid. It's, it's no use talking to these people. They are just mindless puppets. They can't think for themselves. They can't digest. They can't process information. They can't pick apart the facts of the case and accurately talk to what happened. They have a corporate media view of what happened, and that's what happened in their mind, no matter how much facts and evidence is put in front of their faces. And then they're angry when he's acquitted. Here's Mike Cernovich retweeting someone talking about this. Right-wingers on court cases, analyzing what happened, debating what happened, having intellectual discussions about what happened. Left-wingers on court cases. It's racist without any logic or honesty. Yet, they are the only ones I see putting a race before actual reasoning. Right, so these people on the right care about principle, they care about facts, and they argue on the merits of the case, the merits and demerits. What's happening, who's in the right, who's in the wrong, have discussions on it, where those on the left who are parroting talking points from the corporate media are all on narrative. They've been fed a narrative, they repeat the narrative without thinking about that narrative. You even see that this is the case with the latest pandemic, that the people who know most about the medicine, the science, the studies, they're all the ones who are opposing the mass mandate, the masks. There, there is actually a funny uh, uh, infographic that shows an IQ distribution. One of those things where the really dumb people agree with the really smart people, and the people who are vax hesitant tend to be on the lower scale of the IQs and on the higher side of the IQs. And that's contrasted against a picture that shows uh, college education by vax resistance, where the people who are educated in the high IQ are the ones who are more resistant than the hump of the curve, the, the middling IQ people. The middling IQ people are the ones who are going off of narrative. They've been fed a narrative, they're repeating that narrative, and it doesn't matter what the fact, they don't want to discuss the facts, they don't want to talk about mass effectiveness, how effective masks are at, at stopping spreads of disease, they don't want to talk about uh, case rates in various states who have adopted different policies, for example, North Dakota versus South Dakota. They do not want to talk about those things. The facts do not matter. They have their talking points. They're going to stick to their talking points. And they're just going to repeat those talking points. They don't want to discuss. It's not about facts. It's not about logic. It's about repeating narrative. How are these people conditioned? How does this stuff happen? There's this interesting 4chan post, and if you know what 4chan is, never go to that site. Just find 4chan posts on Twitter where it is retweeted. Um, the things that are not, uh, you know, downright terrible stuff that always is posted on 4chan. But this is a good post. The subject of John Oliver came up when a colleague, a fellow psychologist, and I were discussing politics a few months ago. We were both in agreement regarding the general uh, inanity of the HBO show, the leftist ideology. My friend was surprised when I explained that the real insidiousness of it in its unmistakably hypnotic structure and pacing. I ended up pulling an episode or two off of YouTube to show her what I meant. All the segments I've ever seen from the show follow the same repetitive format. Present some argumentation and facts for about 10 seconds. Then quickly follow these up with snarky quip, which themselves overwhelmingly take the form of complete non-sequitur or otherwise absurd metaphor. Before any rational processing of the preceding argument can take place in the mind of the viewer, further telling is that the only beats or mental pauses in the show's pacing exist solely to highlight the approving laughter or applause from the studio audience. Repeat this basic formula without variation 20 to 40 times in a row, and you have one of the 12 to 20 minute segments from that backbone of that show. The end effect is, obviously, not to deliver information, 
but rather to teach the viewers on a subconscious level to mentally associate diversive laughter with any person or opinion that is at odds with the narrative's take on the chosen issue. And it accomplishes this by maintaining a strict adherence to roughly 20 second cycle in which a stimulus is presented, a response is cued. This is the sense in which the show is fundamentally hypnotic in effect, even more so than its precursors in the genre, Daily Show, Colbert, etc. To my mind, Oliver's show is representative of the media's increasing mastery of the methodologies of mass conditioning. In fact, it is almost such a perfect technique accomplishment that I would almost have to admire it on technical grounds, which moreover is in the hands of the entirely wrong people. Notice that there, there's a message. The message is given positive reinforcement. The message is repeated. Uh, the opposition to those uh, that message are frowned upon. It's like George Orwell's Five Minutes of Hate in 1984. You jeer at the enemies and uh, you applaud for your talking points. This is how people are issued their talking points. They go to these mass media consumer marketplaces and they're fed these. Who fed the audience the line about crossing state lines? Things like the Young Turks, things like CNN. These are the people who are pressing this narrative. Feeding their audience talking points to parrot. Parrot endlessly without regard to the actual facts of the case. So, orange man. Bad. Trump. Gloom. Bloom. Cramp. Riff. And here's a picture of that vaccine acceptance curve meme in which uh, the high IQ is asking questions about the data and the low IQ is just re re rejecting on whatever made up grounds the low IQ do. And the middle curve is the ones accepting the narrative. And here's an example, one example of the many memes that show uh, one of these soy jacks crying about Rittenhouse crossing state lines. Y'all always will notice um, if a meme is made kind of by a boomer, if it's just pointing out just absurd hypocrisy or trying to explain facts to the opposition. Like there's plenty of memes out there that show that the people that Rittenhouse shot drove a lot farther to get to that same location than Rittenhouse. People who didn't have any stake in the city whatsoever, unlike, unlike Rittenhouse. But you understand these people are boomers because they think that they can reach people with facts, evidence, and logic. That posting factual information will get that person to think about what they're saying and change their mind. That, in fact, is not a good strategy. It doesn't work. These people are not functioning, thinking people. These people are conditioned. They're conditioned. And so they don't want to actually talk about circumstances, especially circumstances that will go against their narrative. Their narrative collapses when facts are examined, so they will avoid those facts. They will grab small little things that are irrelevant, like crossing state lines, and that will be their talking point. So here's a quote by Michael Malice. Michael Malice is famous for saying boomer cons are the dumbest people in politics, which he might be accurate on that. Boomer cons are naive people who think that they can reason and argue facts with individuals to change those individuals' minds on any particular issue. If you just actually explain to them the data, if you explain to them your thought process, oh, then they would be more tolerant, then they would understand us, then they might even convert and join your side. You're not dealing with people who want to deal honestly with facts and information. You're dealing with ideologues. It's not worth it to engage these people. Do not engage these people. Engage the people who you can make a difference with, who actually consider information, can respond to information, can process facts, can deal with that. Michael Malice writes, blue-pilled people use language as a way to avoid thought. Their cognitive process is entirely different. They use phrases delivered to them by the corporate press to close off thoughts where a critical mind would otherwise go, akin to sewing up a hole in clothes. And so we see this in the theological world. I, again, I say Calvinists are the leftists of the theological world. A good example of using language to close off thoughts is anytime you, we did some uh, posts on the Calvinist dictionary. The various words that they use 
they want strict definitions of that meet their view of theology, their theological definitions. Let's talk about a word that's near and dear to our hearts, the word omniscience. They want a strict classical definition. If you don't accept that classical de definition, of course God's omniscient, they will say. And here's what omniscient means. And so if you try to say, oh no, this is what omniscience means according to the Bible, uh, they'll just try to use words, words to trump you. That's not what omniscience means. If you deny my specific way I define omniscience, then you don't truly believe in omniscience. This is word thinking, word thinking. It's a very low level form of thought as pointed out by Scott Adams. So how do open theists respond? A lot of times like boomer cons, trying to reason with these people, argue with them and just present them facts and information and say, well, you know, it, it is factual because in my definition of omniscient, um, then God knows all possible propositions. He can't know non-propositions. Therefore, as propositions come into existence, he knows them, which still meets the definition of omniscience because God doesn't know nothings. And so they try to have this dialogue with people who are entirely disingenuous, who are not going to accept your definition. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Now we could talk about substantive issues. They're not going to do that because they are word thinkers. They have been conditioned and they're trying to condition their audience into rejecting your position based on word thinking. My position assigns omniscience to God. Your position does not assign omniscience to God. That's, that's their talking point. That's what they're going to try to hammer in. This is what their bread and butter is. It's not in arguing the facts of the case. It's not in arguing niche definitions of these words or trying to explain possibilities in how one perceives omniscience. That is not their goal. Their goal is not to have communication. Their goal is not to have discussion about tangible issues. Their goal is to use words to shut down conversation they don't want you presenting your facts. They do not want you presenting your evidence. They do not want you presenting your, your views. And so they will use words to shut you down. So let's talk about verisimilitude. Now this is a word that means like quasi-real. Something that's approaching reality. But your mind kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't pass over that gap. So if you're watching a movie and uh, every single movie you watch has uh, one transgender person and one homosexual and uh, one very diverse woman character in a position of power, our, our brains eventually will go, this doesn't resemble real life. Something's off about this depiction. It doesn't actually resemble what we experience in our daily life. And it creates this uncanny valley experience. The uncanny valley is a concept in science fiction in which you see robots that are very human-like, but you can't put your finger on it. They're not quite human. It's like looking at a picture of Mark Zuckerberg. It's like it, it, all the features are there in the right places, but something's off. Just, you, you can't put your finger on it, but your mind, your brain tells you something's off. It's like a Star Wars, George Lucas prequel, where everything's using blue screen. Your mind just tells you this is not real. It pulls you out of the moment. And that's what happens also when uh, reading the Bible. This is why the, the Calvinists, they don't like turning to the Bible to argue positions. Because once you start going over the stories, you start going over the characters, the motivations, the events in the Bible, the things said in the Bible, it creates this uncanny valley. It creates this verisimilitude in their minds where they have to square their picture of God an unthinking, unfeeling, immobile, uh, eternally outside of time, uh, eternally simple, someone without passions, impassable. They have to square this view with all this data that they're receiving. And so they don't like turning to the Bible in the debates to talk about these things. Instead, they have to invent entirely new mechanisms and coping strategies in order to deal with the text. A Warren McGrew, we, we might turn to part of his discussion on his debate with Tyler Vela a little bit later, but he points out that Tyler Vela wanted to try to argue that there's didactic texts and they override narrative texts. 
So what you do is you look through the Bible, you come through the Bible for like a statement, and then you take half of that statement and that's your absolute metaphysics. Whereas all the narrative is controlled by that. The narrative is not real. The narrative's just baby talk, nonsense. And so you just turn to those little clips, little, little clips, and you have to read them in the exact way that the Calvinist reads them. And then those control the overall text, which is not how we treat any other text in existence anywhere else. Generally, you make generalizations based on specific data. You go from specifics to generalities, not vice versa. That's how you read text. That's how you read books. And so this mechanism that they're introducing is a coping mechanism because the data does not fit their beliefs. They have to cope. It's a coping mechanism. And so you see a lot of interesting behavior from people who are coping. So I pulled up this clip of Eric Kemp from the provisionist perspective. And he kind of re represents a boomer con of the Arminian slash open theist. He's not an open theist, our open theist perspective, which is not an insult. I'm just painting him as a little bit naive because he's coming to conversations believing that people want to talk about facts and evidence and nuances and different ways to take information rather than understanding that he's dealing with political operatives who don't care about facts and evidence. And he's perplexed by the way that they show hypocrisy and double standards in dealing with him, how they treat the things that he says versus the things that other Calvinists say, which the clearest example of this in my own experience is when I was making the point to one Calvinist one time where the authors of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, you just start going through the Bible books. They didn't believe that God had exhaustive knowledge of the future. And there was a Calvinist who actually agreed with me. He thought that Revelation was progressive. The Old Testament authors didn't have this further insight that was later added. And so they actually didn't believe those things. But when it came to me interacting with another Calvinist on this issue, they were siding with the other Calvinists. They were defending him and attacking me. Huh. Really, because we're right now talking about a subject which you agree with me on. The points that we're discussing currently, you agree with me, yet you're attacking me. Because it's not about facts. It's not about evidence. It's not about uh, processing data and figuring out solutions. It's about in-group, out-group. It's I see a member of my tribe being attacked. I'm going to step in and defend. It's about narrative control, and we, we're going to see in this video Eric Kemp, and he's going to be dealing with uh, internal mental struggle with interacting with these individuals. You'll notice what I'm doing is I'm responding to something that somebody else said. Uh, this guy says, so he defends Leighton Flowers and says, Leighton Flowers never withered, I think, from teaching the Bible is kind of what, what they're talking about. He says, he lifts up the God of Scripture whose love and provision is offered to all. So he's saying that it is scriptural, that... God's, God's love and provision is offered to all. And this uh, cage stage Calvinist um, responds with, no, my friend, he's taking the love of God with no effect. True love is not offered, but given. So he says true love is not offered, uh, but given. Uh, so in response to the provisionist theology that God's love and provision is uh, offered to all, that, that what we say all the time is that we want you to be firmly convinced that God loves every man, woman, boy, and girl, and Christ died for everyone, and anyone can be saved. These things that we say all the time. In response to that, he's saying, no, no, no. Love isn't offered, it's given, okay? I, I, am, I want to be clear that I was responding to this in particular, and you will notice that all I do is respond to this particular quote. I don't generalize it, to say all of Calvinism is like this, because that's what some people are going to accuse me of later. Uh, but I respond to this particularly, and I put it into an, uh, admittedly and purposefully, I put it into a inflammatory context to bring home the point. Just, but think about this for a second. I'm looking at this and he says, true love is given. It's not offered, it's given. What does that sound like to you? That sounds to me like something some CSI villain would say. Somebody on Person of Interest or one of these cop shows, some creepy villain, that's the thing that they would say. Now we're going to fast forward a little bit and let him talk some more. Uh, it's a little bit rich that Calvinists can make this 
comparison. And it's okay when they do it. We, we have all kinds of charity for the comparison they're making, but when I make it, it's despicable and disgusting. So you tell me in the comments below, are there certain comparisons that are just out of bounds because they're out of bounds? Is that how dialogue in the realm of ideas works? That there are just some comparisons we cannot make? Or is it okay to, from time to time, make inflammatory comparisons in order to bring the point home? Now, one of the other things that I, what I'll get to next is a, a little bit of the, not just, I'm not the only one who has made this comparison. Other Calvinists have made this comparison throughout history, but also a, a little bit of the uh, hypocrisy of uh, talking about rhetoric coming from the reform side. And what we'll find is that they're okay with inflammatory, even kind of gross rhetoric if it comes from, from other people. But so you here you have Eric Kemp and he's coming to the realization, he's probably already realized this for some time, that there's a lot of hypocrisy in the Calvinist camp. And uh, he's like, look at this hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is not a bad thing to point out because guess what? There are going to be a lot of boomer cons out there in the world who uh, they, they don't understand the extent of, and the maliciousness and the disingenuousness of this hypocrisy coming from the Calvinist camp. They think that it's that these people are rational, they're honest, they care about facts, they care about evidence, they care about arguments, when in case that is not the fact. And the more that the hypocrisy is pointed out, the more they're going to come to the realization that this, these are bad, bad faith attempts at interaction. These people, they don't care about truth. They don't care about understanding. They don't care about data. They care about narrative, narrative control. They care about in-group, out-group. They care about uh, maintaining the line, holding their theology no matter what, diverting to talking points rather than dealing with data. You see it all the time. You see this obfuscation. You see this jumping around. You say, okay, here in this verse, God repents as part of the narrative. And it's, it's, it's an integral, integral to the narrative. And they say, hey, look over here at this verse. This verse controls. That means your verse doesn't mean. It's like, what, what, are, what, what are we doing here? We're just turning to some other data point, which you claim. It, it's just a claim. Claims are not evidence. Claims are not proof. Uh, claims have to have some sort of support. You can't just make a claim. And just uh, expect that that claim is is carried, that that claim is accurate. You have to have some supporting evidence for your claims. But turning back to what Eric Kemp said, he, he's blown away that he could say the exact same thing as a Calvinist. They'll rush to the defense of the Calvinist and come to crucify him. This happens often. It happens uh, dealing with Calvinists against open theists. Uh, people in the Bible say God repents. God in the Bible says he repents. But if you say God repents, now you're a heretic. Uh, you're not given the same charity that those verses are. Uh, that, that verse has to be nuanced away. People in the Bible say, go save yourself or you can save others. But if you talk like that, they'll accuse you of blaspheming God. The verses that are in the Bible. God's will is resisted within the Bible. But if you talk about God's will being resisted, you are specifically targeted as someone who's who's diminishing God's uh, sovereignty. The Bible says that the lawyers resisted the will of God being baptized. The, the, these are verses in the Bible that actually exist. It's this double standard that the Bible can say the exact same you, thing you say, uh, but the Bible means their theology, and you saying that means uh, rank heresy. It's because it's not about the Bible. It's not about the data. It's about narrative control. Narrative control. It's about this propaganda that they have been conditioned into. The Bible can say anything. And I pointed this out very recently in a Facebook group post on God is Open, in which I posted an interaction of myself with um, this, this uh, very old Calvinist lady with a COVID vaccine stamp in her Facebook picture. And what does she say? She says, oh, uh, God doesn't love the world in the Bible. He only loves the elect. And I asked her, because I'm inquiring about her mindset, 
What combination of words, if found in the Bible, would convince you that God loves the world? And she wouldn't answer that. She, her, instead, her answers were, God doesn't love the world. Okay, well, we, we know you believe that. Yes, yes, given everything we know right now, we know you believe that. But what combination of words, if found in the Bible, would convince you that God loves the world? They're not going to answer this. They're not going to answer this because there are no combination of words if found in the Bible, which would make them believe this. And I use this question all the time to gauge people's intellectual integrity to see if the Bible could say anything in any context to actually convince them that they're wrong. It's a thought experiment about intellectual honesty. And I've been asked this back before. Chris Date asked me this once because I asked him. And then he asked me back, he said, well, what, what combination of words, if found in the Bible, would make you believe that God knows the future exhaustively? And I posted a, uh, one or two quotes of, of uh, first century Gnostic texts, which are fairly clearly in that camp where they believe that God has this exhaustive knowledge of the future. So there is combinations of words which would make me believe that the author did have this idea that God does know the future. So I read these texts, I read these ancient texts, and it's clear to me that these people, these groups, believe this specific thing. Why? Because I'm evaluating data. I'm treating them as uh, isolated data points and trying to figure out authorial intent in their individual context. Not every single early group believed these things. Not everyone did, but some of them did. And you're able to identify these things by what they write guess what that's our data set what our data set when it comes to the bible or early christians early christian fathers or gnostics is what they actually write that's our data set and that's what we need to base our beliefs in rather some random abstract uh, theology came up in your own head here's another interesting tweet and this is from a person named claude he says open up my news extension thing there was a car accident and a crowd of people injured we don't know who did it or why this this is like mainstream media this is corporate media reporting on this oh we have no facts about this open up 4chan there was a car accident at Christmas market, at least five dead. Here's the car of the guy, his name, his face, his YouTube, his Twitter, his political views, his criminal history, the DA that freed him, and what his dog ate yesterday. He says, this is just silly at this point. Why? Because these corporate media sources want to control narrative. They're waiting for a narrative spin on any story before they release facts. Because guess what? People are good at pattern recognition. Pattern recognition is a human property, and we notice things. And uh, we get this sense of verisimilitude when we see this narrative control over and over and over again, and the accuracy of the people who actually care about the facts and data. It's not the narrative spin that they want to give to this. And so they'll sideline stories that don't fit their narrative, and if the, that, that story is blown out of proportion, they will look for ways to spin that narrative to their talking points. So to illustrate this in the theological world, I'm gonna to turn to a clip of me interacting with this guy, Eric Rice. I think since this conversation, he has come to and noticed some errors in his theology. So I wouldn't take him as a Calvinist anymore. He's probably a traditional Arminian or even open theist. But I think this conversation started him thinking because it's a young guy, grew up in a culture that has uh, is culturally dominated by Calvinism, has these categories in mind, has not examined his proof texts. And so he's getting the corporate media take on various proof texts. He, he's not aware of the details. He's not aware about what goes on in the text and the nuances or anything like that. And here is a clip in which he is confronted by me on the details of his own proof text, and he's completely ignorant of it. And we'll kind of talk through this as it goes. Yeah, uh, well, I came in to side my good brother, Mike, you know, um, but I do not uh, believe we are robots and God controls us. I do believe we have a human will, a human uh, free will that's in bondage to sin from the fall and our fallen nature. As Jesus says, you are a slave. Talking about uh, controlling narratives, and notice that on YouTube now, that the dislike button does not show numbers anymore. Why? Because things like Joe Biden's speeches were being downvoted to oblivion. Because regardless of what the media told us, he's not the most popular president in American history. 80 million votes. He's not that guy. And uh, they don't want us to see the facts of this. They don't want us to see the evidence. 
a slave. Whoever commits sin is a slave. You don't have this autonomous free will in such that you could live a perfect life as God in the flesh. You don't have free will to do that due to you're in the bondage of sin from the fall. Um, that's what I mean by uh, will that's stuck in bondage. Now, when you talk about God in that he can change his mind as a human, like you one yourself, the text uh, totally says uh, that's not true in numbers. It says he's not uh, his mind. God, he does not change Who's his speaking? mind. Like Who's speaking? In numbers? Yeah. It says he does not change his man like a human. Uh, well, yeah, who's talking? That, that's a quote, right? God. It, uh, yeah, all let, scripture let, is God's let, breath, right? Let's hope it's not a false prophet talking when he says that. So this this is actually really funny. This happens all the time. So why would the Calvinists choose numbers over Samuel 15 for their proof text? Their go-to proof text is often numbers and not for Samuel 15. Why? Because 1 Samuel 15 is the context of two times specifically stating that God repents. And so they're not going to use the prophet Samuel saying that God is not a man, that he should lie or change his mind. Instead, they're going to turn to numbers because that's a more obscure proof text. It doesn't have immediately have counterpoints against it. So what I like to do in these situations is just to point out their gross ignorance of the context. And what are you gonna what are you gonna do? You're gonna say, hey, you're quoting a false prophet. This is gonna take them back because they're not aware that's what they're doing. They're not aware of who they're quoting. They, 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 they don't know. They they literally don't know the context of their own proof text, and this will set them back. So hopefully there's there's enough time in your conversation with these people to follow up and explain the the context of what's going on in this proof text, who's saying what and why, and what's the meaning. But this is an initial way to pause the conversation and make them regroup, or trace back lost grounds. And now if they want to talk about this as their proof text, they need to justify in context why the, the words of a false prophet are to be championed over God. So it's a great point. It's a great point to stop the conversation, stop their proof text, and force them to recalibrate. And since they're completely ignorant over the context of their own verses, this is a very great thing to show the audience that these people just will throw out anything. They they don't they just don't know what they're quoting. That's hoping you got to know the context and the whole thing oh, before you start saying a sentence and leaving it at that. That's oh, Balaam okay, talking. Well, hold on, hold on. Right, uh, uh, hold so, on, so, bro. So, so, right, hold on, you guys. Uh, real quick, uh, Chris, if you can grab the, the the text and put it up before you, so it can it can be right there if you can. That way they can see what it's saying. All right. <laughs> Uh, matter of fact, I can grab it. I can screenshot. I mean, I got it right here. Numbers twenty-three, nineteen. Yeah, but I, I, God is, God is yeah. not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said it, and it will not, uh, will it not do it. Uh, he has spoken, and will not fulfill it. There's also lamentation, as he not said, and will come to pass. Uh, you also deny the future, sir. And also says in Psalms, he also knows the words off our tongue before we say it. If you look up any def uh, definition for future, it doesn't uh, that say is that. Future. Uh, Psalms clearly says he knows um, off our lips before we say. So you notice a few things about my Calvinist interlocutor. Number one, he's not going to address the things I just said about his proof text. He wants to move on to a different proof text because now he's in this weird situation where it's very painfully clear he doesn't know his own proof text. So he's trying to proof text hop. You've called him on one, hop to another one. And so it's good to just call him on that too. Nope, your other proof text doesn't say that either. Now let's talk about your first proof text and what's going on there. I'm calling him on it and uh, he's, he's not liking it very much. You can't just let them talk without uh, calling them on this. It, it, you need to make sure that the audience understands. The audience needs to understand that the people you're interacting with are, are just parroting talking points. They don't understand their talking points. They've been fed these talking points. This is just repeating something that they have heard. It needs to be put down. It needs to be put down violently. Say it. What a bet. What a bet. We, okay, we know these the passages here, brother. We know these passages. Oh, and, and we okay, well, you, you talk about, oh, we read the right, text right, literally. So hold on, hold on. Oh, you guys let, keep let, saying you take the text Hold on, literal. real, real right. quick, real quick. Let, let Chris speak on those texts because he's real clear and precise precise on that so chris i'm put i'm gonna put these these texts on the screen real quick and uh because i got it over here too and uh, i'm gonna put it up there that way you can read them and uh we'll we'll go from there so if you look can you guys see my screen 
Yes. Yep. So, um, yep. I, as well, Chris, you can read it off your screen, but I just want to follow you with that. I'm going to mute my mic so the audience can actually see the screen. Go ahead, brother. No, I'd, I'd like Eric actually to walk us through numbers. Who's talking to who? What's the circumstance? Uh, wh what's going on in the text? It's his proof text. Does he know the context of his proof text, Eric? Uh, so I could have done that thing. I could have walked everyone through the context, but... I'm doubling down. He doesn't know the context of his proof text and calling him out publicly in front of everyone, putting him on the spot. This is his proof text. I don't have to walk through his proof text. He should be able to tell us a little bit about his proof text. This is reinforcing to the audience that these this is blind proof text quoting. This is blind proof text quoting. They don't know what their proof text says. But yeah, it's clearly speaking about God. Who? It Who's, says talking? God. Who's talking? Who's uh, talking? The writer of numbers. No. This is a narrative. A narrative a, about there, God. There's quote marks. There's quote oh. marks. Who's talking? You don't know your proof text. You don't know the context of uh, your is proof that, text. Is that what you guys going to do here? That um, this yes. isn't talking about God when it says God? Cause, all right, I'll get my study Bible and get the context to it. Uh, uh, if I'll, that's not talking about the God of the Bible when it clearly says God does not change his mind like a human. He also who is talking? People the this Bible is a also quote. Says, okay, you this tell me who's talking on this earth. You, you let me know who's talking in the Okay, earth. I'll read it to you. I'll read it to you. It's it's not hard. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, "Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind." It's Balaam talking. Balaam is talking. Okay. You didn't know your context. And he's you talking don't... about who? Who's he talking about? He's in talking context? about Go Yahweh. Yeah, is, thank who you. Who is Balaam? Who is thank Balaam? You. You don't know who Balaam, who is Balaam is. Balaam talking about? Who is Balaam? Balaam, is Balaam was the prophet. All he's right, a, he's my, a false my, prophet. Is it about God? Or not? He's a he's a bad prophet who's killed. Is this a false statement no. about God? He wasn't a bad prophet until he disobeyed. What does it mean? Thank what, you, Mike. What does this, it mean? Is this text in context? You can look it up from anywhere and throw it history in context. People know in that Numbers verse, as God is unmutable and does not change his mind, every theologian or systematic theology teaches that. Besides, That's not about the text. Not you're, you're jumping uh, to a new subject. Because you want to say, talk oh, well, about Balaam said it, so it must not be true when it says clearly, it's talking about, like you said, no, Yahweh. No, no, That's okay, not, not I, nothing I said. God. No, no, nothing. So you, it's not about God, yes or no? You're hallucinating. I never said any now, of those things. You're hallucinating, sir. You deny a future. Yeah, okay. All right, it's my the turn to talk. The future's not real. So notice the instant line, the instant projection. Um, if you pull, quote them on something, if you if you call them out on something, they'll instantly hallucinate you're talking about something else. And this is this is what Scott Adams points out as well. And remember, Scott Adams wrote the book Win Bigly: Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter, because uh, he's a early uh, innovator on this subject who's picked up on these themes that in this post-fact world. Facts don't matter for persuasion. People are sticking to narrative, and they're doubling down on narrative, rather. And he writes this, When people do not have irrational reasons for their views, and you help them achieve that realization, they typically and immediately hallucinate that your argument is some kind of absurd absolute instead of whatever reasonable thing you actually said. That instant hallucination provides the critic something with which they can easily disagree. And so in the case of the Calvinist lady I was dealing with, she said, oh, you believe that this and this and this. It's like none, nothing I said in our conversation was anything about my own beliefs. Everything was asking questions about your beliefs and your mentality and your state of mind and what you believe. This, this, was, this is actually a question about your intellectual integrity. What can the Bible say? What combination of words would make you believe that the Bible teaches that God knows or god loves the entire world or in other contexts that god doesn't know the entire future exhaustively what combinations of words would lead you to believe this this is this is attested for intellectual integrity this is not me trying to acquire theological knowledge from someone or trying to debate the finer points of theology in fact you don't want to debate the finer points of theology with someone of this mindset someone who has been mass propagandized in their talking points. You don't want to debate about the nuances of omniscience and the different ways to take omniscience with a disingenuous, dishonest person. It's a waste of your time. It's a waste of the audience time. Anyone interacting, a waste of their time. And it's going to demoralize you 
It's it's gonna it's gonna make you feel bad, and uh, it's gonna actually anger you because you are trying to act in integrity, act with uh, nuance, act with uh, in intellectualism, and you're being faced with people who are entirely disingenuous. It's it's a frustrating endeavor. Don't do it to yourself. Don't do it to yourself. Point out their absurdity to others. Yes, it's okay to meme about their hypocrisy. It's okay to make videos pointing out that they have no standards. They have no standards. No standards at all. It's okay, as I point out here, to call them liars to their face. They are liars. They need to be publicly called on it. He said, oh, I, I claimed that whatever he said was false. I said nothing of the sort. There's no claims of me. There's only questions only questions to probe his understanding of what's going on. And he didn't even get me a, give me a chance to explain my own position. He immediately hallucinated I said things that I didn't. Oh, Balaam's statement about God was incorrect because he was a false prophet. That's not something I said. That's not a position I take. First, you point out who's talking, why they're talking, and what context they're talking. And then you could talk about what they're talking about. That, that will give us some insight. And pointing out that it's a false prophet that they're relying on slows down the conversation. You, you, you could go through those details once you slow down the conversation to talk about those details. They don't want to talk about the details. The details do not help their narrative. The details do not help their case. Their case is best served by jumping from proof text to proof text and never letting you talk about the details of those proof texts. So I'm going to continue on and hit play. Clearly, this guy denies the future. All right, clearly you know nothing about your proof text. Clearly you don't know what's happening in this text. You don't know who's talking. You don't know who they're talking to. And, and on top of that, you think this is a proof text for your metaphysics. No, that's not. In context, this is Balaam talking. Balaam was a false prophet. God commandeered him and overrode him because Balaam, Balaam was approached by this Balak in order to falsely uh, curse Israel, to, to pronounce a curse against Israel which seems to, in the text, have some effectuality. This is a curse that probably would have been successful against Israel if carried out. God stops him from doing that. He goes to Balak, and Balak says, hey, why can't you curse Israel? And he says, God is not a man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. What is that about? That is about God's eternal promise to Israel, to bless Israel. God is not going to change his mind about that. So in context, this is limited to a very specific subject. It's not a metaphysical absolute. It's not about uh, your special third century Platonist metaphysics. It's nothing about that. It's about the context. It's about the specific thing going on here. As is the same case in Samuel, in which Samuel says God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. In context, that's about God repenting of making Saul king. It's specifically limited to context because in 1 Samuel 15, it says twice, God says it and the narrator says it, that God repents. What you do, though, is you take these little clips, you take them from people you don't even know who's talking, you don't know the context, and you say, oh, Balaam, of course, is speaking my metaphysics. And of course, that overrides what God says about himself and what the text says about itself. Yeah, let's, let's elevate the word of false prophets and my metaphysics over the words of God. That's what you do. You don't know the context. King David says, Lord, before I say a word, you know what's on my tongue. And you say, oh, God knows everyone's words everywhere, what they say before they say it. No, in context, King David is talking, and you, you don't know the context of so, your proof So text. God only knows everything King David was going to say, but not us. That's not what I said. Again, there's the instant hallucination. I say something, they hallucinate something that I didn't say at all. Because again, the goal is not to accurately represent. That goal is not to accurately respond. That goal is to find something against which you can disagree and argue about. You could argue about these details. I got you over here on this point, rather than actually dealing with someone's belief. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a genuine disagreement. Yeah, the next thing that we're going to show is a clip from the Warren McGrew uh, on, the, on the Susan Morales channel. And this is a good channel. Probably you should go subscribe to it. She's, she seems very level-headed. But Warren McGrew is very frustrated from his Tyler Vela debate. Now, I warned Warren McGrew that he's going to be dealing with a very disingenuous, um, a bad human being. Tyler Vela, bad human being. And uh, that he should expect no less. And so he gets to the debate. And he's frustrated that Vela doesn't even care to defend his own claims. 
Vela, he, he conflates, he conflates making a claim with that claim being true. Oh, I don't, don't read the verse like you. It means this instead. Well, okay, what leads you to that conclusion? Then crickets. And Warren McGrew, after the debate, has some online interaction with him that he screenshotted, which Tyler Vela says, oh, I could just claim things are a logical fallacy or a red herring or or whatever false categories. This is a category error without having to actually explain why it is the case that it's that way. And th that's his position because he is in this conditioned mentality. He doesn't want to actually explore thoughts, ideas. He doesn't want to think about things. He wants to be able to just dismiss things that go against his worldview, his outlook. And one thing I suggest that everyone does is go download this paper that I reference on God is Open. And this was the subject of episode 180, The Cult of Calvinism. And this is called Calvinism Summarized. And it talks about this mindset. Literally everyone should go read this paper. I'm just going to go ahead and read this paragraph because uh, I, I saw fit to summarize it for this blog post. Calvinism's socialization processes, Milu control, a closed system of logic. The society of Calvinists dramatically differs from mainstream Protestant Christianity and Catholicism in the emphasis it puts on adherence to doctrine. The doctrine becomes the cherished identity maker, a trophy which separates the Calvinists from all other Christian groups. The doctrine sets them apart as superior. The doctrine is therefore sacred. Calvinist pastors can be observed brooding over their congregation's assimilation of the doctrine. It is quite common for Calvinist leaders to counsel congregations against exposing themselves to alternative forms of biblical scholarship, no matter how highly that scholarship is recognized internationally. The Calvinist authority structure seeks to exert a much higher degree of control over information. Thus, Calvinism, so teleologically, has for many years been a closed system with its own unique values and its own unique language. Applying what social psychologists call Milu control. The control processes at work within the Calvinist authoritarian social structure controls feedback from group members and refuses to be modified, which results in a closed system of logic. It is consistently observed that Calvinists manifest a pronounced degree of partisanship and almost obsessive allegiance to the doctrine and to idolized persons, prompting the concern that the respecting of per persons within the system is so persuasive that it may represent a form of seductive entrenchment to which the Christian youth are significantly vulnerable. Calvinism is a closed system. It sets up leaders like John Piper, John MacArthur, James White, and there's this automatic loyalty to those individuals. And they vie for status. Tyler Vela wants himself to be in this in this uh, group and you see his sycophants flooding to the comments congratulating him in his win over warren mcgrew on what grounds you read read the grounds that they claim and it's like oh he showed them that uh, you need to take these snippets of these various verses as controlling texts and so he wins because he described the correct process which we think is the way you should read the bible it's just all nonsense again that's no way we treat any other text on earth only in this closed system of logic, who's reinforced itself with this closed system, with these, these controls that, that stop outside information, without critical examination of data that they're digesting, without going over the facts and details. It's just like the Rittenhouse case. They're repeating propaganda. But, 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 he crossed state lines. But, 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 you deny sovereignty. So listening to Warren. So he would say, well, God knew that would be a possibility if he decreed for it to be a possibility because he's powerful, but since he didn't decree for it to occur, it never occurred, but God knew he could make it occur. But that's not really what we see going on in scripture. It's not God saying, I know I can make Saul come and kill you. It's God saying, Saul's on his way, buddy. And I know that this city and its defenses will not stand up against him. And I know the hearts and minds of those in leadership over this city. And I know that they have young children and wives and they have lives, and you're not worth that to them. They're going to hand you over. And so, in my view, God's active omniscience or God's active awareness and complete knowledge based on a temporally present perception of reality, God knew all of that. And so, He knows possibilities as possible. He knows hearts and intentions and minds and actions, and He works all of that together. But I think Tyler would approach this and equivocate and say, well, 
God knows if he decreed that, he could do it. And I think he sidesteps the entire point of contention in doing so. But he's, he's really dedicated his, his time to making his position unfalsifiable, which means that there's a lot of A, but not A, uh, true, but false. God knows tense propositions, but not tensely. Um, this sort of contradictory, but it's okay. Uh, in the debate, um, you know, he brought up the two wills of God. And I was like, yeah, now you've got two decrees. And so within that particular Calvinistic tradition, the way that they have been taught to deal with these contradictory positions and entailments is by way of ad hoc category creation. So they'll come in and they'll say, well, this is one claim and this is one thing and they're in contradiction. So instead of leaving them together, I'll separate them and I'll give a theological label to this and a theological label to that. So now I'm only looking at this or I'm only looking at that and I don't see how they contradict. So it's, it's a way of processing cognitive bias and ignoring the actual problems. So I think that that's what he would engage in. Now, whether that was intentional or the byproduct of his commitment to his own worldview and it's just a, um, an accidental entailment of his own commitment to defending this, I, I don't wanna judge his motives, but I would say here that I think he would equivocate and I think that he would do an A but not A argument and just sidestep the whole issue. All right, I guess the end audio to this podcast has been lost, so I got to re-record it. But we see Warren McGrew here, and uh, he's trying to internally deal with the fact that there's disingenuous actors out there in the world. They don't care about facts or information. They don't care about accurately understanding your position. They want a narrative control. And uh, he got a good dose of this. I warned him about it. I said, this is an evil person. And now he's like, oh, I'm starting to believe you that you, what you're actually saying is correct. Yeah, what I'm saying is correct. I have a general policy on Facebook to automatically block any Calvinist who uses a laugh react or anyone in general who uses a laugh react to try to undermine any points that I'm gonna make. So why would I want to interact why would I want these people in my life who are just going to try to mock me and say my opinions are laughable? you got to cut them out of your life. These are not people worth engaging in. The people worth engaging in are the people who can accurately understand your beliefs, who try to consider your beliefs, try to understand what you're saying and why you're saying it, putting themselves in your shoes. Those are the people that you are, are reachable. And the people who are young, who uh, get red-pilled in a way, like our, our friend Eric there, who kind of got the red-pill treatment when it turned out that his perception of reality was not accurate as soon as he was confronted with the details. Again, he's never studied the details before this point. He was repeating narrative up to that point. And once he's confronted with those details, it, it gave him a little shock to his system. So sometimes that's going to work to deprogram people. But once people are old enough or deep enough in or have too much writing on it, people like Matt Slick, people like Tyler Vela, they're not going to be changing their minds. They're not people that you're going to interact with to actually gain information. What they want is narrative control. Remember, in the Tyler Vela, Warren McGrew debate, it's all about narrative control, shutting down Warren McGrew. Uh, calling him heretic, um, not explaining your own position, not defending the points that you make. Remember, Tyler Vela thought that all he had to do was say, we read that differently and not have to defend why his reading was accurate, why his reading was intellectual, why any of the claims he made had any validity. He didn't think he had to do that. And what he's trying to do is signal to the audience, they don't interact. He's trying to signal don't interact with these people. Don't consider their views. Just shut them down. Don't explain. Shut down conversation. The people who are trying to shut down conversation are those to be wary of as disingenuous actors. They're not worth interacting with. And I'm again, I, I'm, I'm happy to engage in the, those Calvinists who will actually interact on an intellectual level and consider things that are said and consider positions, as I have shown on my channel time and time again, of various Calvinists. But the disingenuous ones, the ones who are out there trying to sow seeds of discord, trying to control narratives, misrepresenting you, doing the Kathy Newman thing, like uh, the Jordan Peterson, Kathy Newman interview, where it's just consistent misrepresentation. 
like Taylor Tyler Vela has done to me, like he's done to Warren McGrew, just outright lies about our positions, outright lies about what we believe. And that's why when I interact with these people, again, I always turn to the Bible. It's not about me. It's not about what I believe. It's about what the Bible supports. That way it takes away their personal attacks. They say, oh, you believe such and such. Well, not me. The Bible actually teaches that. So it's you against the Bible. And so you don't have to be a Christian if you don't want to. You don't have to be a Christian. There's other religions out there. Platonism seems like your thing. That might be your jam. And it's not tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's li literally saying that you're not engaging with the Bible. The Bible is the data set that I care about. If you're not engaging with the Bible, then what are we doing here? Why do you consider yourself Christian if you're just going to take whatever the Bible says and ignore it? That is literally what I'm saying. And they don't like it. So it, it is a good strategy. When you flip the narrative on them, when you expose them for their lies, when you expose them for their dishonesty, when you expose them as bad actors, uh, they don't like it. They don't want to engage with that anymore. But anyways, we're going to leave that there for tonight. If you want to uh, like or comment or, or start a thread on God is Open, thank you for listening. Oh, 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 oh,